From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. Today's episode is one I've been looking forward to for quite a while. Our guest is Reginald Dwayne Betts, a poet, memoirist, and legal scholar. Loyal listeners will remember our conversation from March of 2019, and I highly recommend that deep cut from the At Liberty Archive. The episode was called A Poet Gives a 360-Degree View of the Criminal Legal System, and we talked about Duane's journey from a teenage defendant sentenced to nine years in prison to a Yale Law School graduate and published poet. A lot has happened since we last spoke. Duane published a new book of poetry called Felon and had an exhibit at PS1 MoMA with painter Titus Kafar called Redaction. If that wasn't enough, Duane also completed a clerkship with a federal judge and is pursuing a PhD in law at Yale. And of course, this episode is being recorded months into a global pandemic that poses particular risks for people in detention. Today, we'll discuss the impact COVID-19 is having on incarcerated people, what we should do to support the thousands of people that are getting out of detention as a result of efforts by the ACLU and others, and how art can help us get through these uncertain times. Dwayne, thanks very much for joining us once again. Welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, nah, man, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, there's a lot to cover, but I wanted to start with a reading from your book of poetry, Felon, which came out late in 2019. Congratulations. Appreciate it. But as I mentioned, we've got thousands, literally thousands of people who have been let out of prison. It's not nearly enough. But as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and the very likely, if not certain, outcome of having that kind of an outbreak in a prison facility, lots and lots of people have been trying to get folks out and about a, thousands of people have already been let out. So reentry is a primary issue on a lot of people's minds. So this piece that I wanted to start with is called Essay on Reentry. It echoes the whole point about reentry in a sense that, you know, a lot of what a word like felon does and a lot of what incarceration does is attempt to erase people and reduce people to a moment of their lives. And so when you come home, you're constantly stuck in that moment and you're really trying to work through it, not just the outside pressure, but pressure you create internally, trying to work through your life so that you can move past that moment. And this poem contemplates that. Essay on reentry of prison. No one tells you the time will steal your memories. Until there's nothing left but strip searches and the hole and fights and hidden shanks and the spades games. You come home and become a parade of confessions that leave you drowning. Laws recounting the disappeared years. You say, fuck this world where background checks like your fingerprints announce the crime. Where so much of who you are betrays guilt older than you. Your pops uncles, a brother, two cousins, and enough childhood friends for a game of throwback. All learned absurdity from shackles, but we wear the mask that grins and lies. Why pretend these words don't seize our breath? Prisoner, inmate, felon, convict, nothing can be denied. Not the gun that delivered you to that place where you witness the images that won't let you go. Catfish learning to subtract, his eyes a heron slurred mess, 
blue-black doing backflips in state boots. The DC kid that killed his cellmate, Jesus. Barely older than you, he had on one of the white undershirts made by other men in prison. Boxes, socks that slouched, shackles gripping his shins, damn near naked, life waiting. Outside your cell, you could see them wheel the dead man down the way. The pistol pressed against the stranger's temple gave you that early morning. And now Box's check had become your North Star Philip Catalyst to despair. Death by prison stretch. Tell me, what name for this thing that haunts this thing we become? Well, thank you. Thank you very much for writing that poem, but also for reading it for us today. I mean, I mean, the poem is so, so powerful and paints such a deep and complicated picture of what it's like to face that moment. And I wonder what comes to your mind when you read about, you know, as I said, obviously, we need to get everybody out. But the efforts that many folks have successfully had to get lots of folks, especially who are in pretrial detention, there's efforts going on in federal courts and state courts with ICE detention and other venues. But basically, there's a lot of folks getting out of detention right now and facing these questions on an individual basis. So I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear about these decarceration efforts. I think maybe um, it's been revelatory in in a couple of ways. So one sense, you realize that people throw around words like abolition, right? And it's theoretical and in some ways it's practical and folks are extremely committed. But it makes like this moment makes me think about a sort of gap that was there. Like, because what does it mean to make efforts urgent? And what does it mean to think about abolition in a way that people think about it when their families are incarcerated? Mm. So I think what this moment makes me think about on one level is how we might think about adding some oomph to decarceration efforts. Mm. Because this has forced people to strategize about, wait a minute, what can we change right now? And I don't know, man. For me, um, I guess the last thing I'll say is I also think about everybody that's inside now who, you know, the threat that incarceration poses is far more salient to the public. It was always salient to them. Mm-hmm. But it now is like far more salient to the public. And I think people inside now, the danger of prison has been reaffirmed, right? And so much of, at least from my perspective, I always thought the danger of prison as a prisoner was remaining safe in terms of like not getting banked by the guards, in terms of not getting like in conflict on the yard because all of that conflict could escalate to serious violence, right, immediately. But now... I think it's a heightened awareness from people on the inside that the primary threat has always been incarceration. And I think that's one of those things, at least for me, when I was doing time, I didn't hold it in the same way. You know, I think I was doing my bid and I wasn't thinking about the primary threat being incarceration. You know, you had to have 30, 40 years, been down for 15, 20 years. You had to start aging in prison, I think, back when I was doing time to really understand that, um, the threat was incarceration. And I think now everybody gets it on the inside and the outside that the threat is incarceration itself. Well, something clearly is different, right? Now, the pandemic has changed the situation. And I mean, 
I have to say that the last conversation that we had, I was talking about my cousin who's locked up in, in San Diego. I think based on that conversation, I've actually really built that link in a way that I hadn't been able to before. So he wrote to me just last week about how scared people are in prison of this threat and knowing full well that once it comes in, it's going to really lay a lot of people down. And and he said that he, you know, the social distance, the physical distancing is just not possible, right? Like it's just not happening. Yeah, he's, no, it's not. He's got a cellmate. The only thing that's happening is less movement. Right. But there's no doubt people are trying to watch stuff. But I'm wondering, I know that you're in contact with a lot of people who are incarcerated. And I wonder what you're hearing in terms of how people are feeling about the particular new threat around the pandemic. I think the point is like the same thing your cousin said, you know, like now it used to be like, can I survive this time? Right. And now is will time get cut short on me because of the pandemic. Mm. And it's weird, though, because it's almost sort of like um, some places have handled it horribly. Mm. They've handled horribly thinking about who should be released. Right. I'm saying most everybody should be released. I'm saying that this has rejiggered some of the metrics. Right. So now you have people being released who just wouldn't have been released three, four months ago. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying that we need to push it even harder. Right. And I think people inside recognize that even more. And, and I think the fear is just reality. And it's like, I just had to back up and be like, what am I doing for the people who walk the yard with me? Right. And, and it'd be like, I hate to say this, right? Yeah. But if I expend energy on some kind of organizing effort, on some kind of effort for people that I don't know, and then I get a call and it's like my homeboy is in medical solitary because mm. of suspicion of COVID and he ain't got a clemency petition on the mayor's desk in front of the parole board, then in some way sort of I fundamentally failed. And I think what I've come to realize, and I, you know, I always used to push back against the people who, I still push back a little bit against, you know, the idea that the people who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. I mean, I think that's true. Sometimes people closest to the problem are just closest to the problem. Well, it brings to mind one of the legal issues that you brought up last time we spoke. And I think it's sort of a focus of your scholarship, which is the intersection between criminal law and administrative law. You know, now it's a matter of this parole and clemency question and everything is is centering around that and all of the work in getting people out is now, you know, it's largely administrative law. There's no criminal law that's being reformed. So... I'm curious how that line of research is going and whether that seems so pertinent to the current situation. Yeah, well, I would say the, the other point, though, is sort of, especially in the feds, but in the feds and the states, is you always got that sort of sentence modification route. Yeah. And what I've come to realize really is that, you know, people in prison and maybe even people on the outside, we always thought about a sentence modification as not a last resort, but maybe as a backdoor way to get in front of the judge as an alternative to the parole board. I know Virginia parole law because I've represented people in Virginia parole because I did time with people mm-hmm. in Virginia because I was in Virginia waiting for parole to return. And you see a moment like this and in Virginia, they got these two specific laws. So one is Fishback. And Fishback was a law that says that back in like 94, when they got rid of parole, they didn't tell juries that parole no longer existed. Mm-hmm. So you had this time period where juries were still sentencing people as if parole existed. And so they passed a law called Fishback, which allows those folks to now be eligible for parole. I mean, one question is, why do we assume that judges weren't also still sentencing people as if parole existed? Mm. And then another question is, 
how can you actually fucking figure that out anyway, right? right? But in terms of an immediate step before you bring parole back, Fishback became a, a mechanism to get more people parole. So that just passed and it was supposed to go into play in July, along with, with another bill that brought back parole for people who got convicted of crimes committed before the age of 18. And so that is still scheduled to come back in July, but Fishback is pushed earlier because of COVID. And so again, it does revitalize the sort of importance of parole mechanisms. So Virginia's not New York. In New York, they got robust parole mm. proceedings, right? Everything's recorded and they have a mechanism where parole as administrative law basically does kind of become as robust as what we would consider a criminal process because you can go back in front of a judge, you can appeal it, you can create a record and they actually do have a body of parole law. But that notwithstanding, now all of a sudden we could think through one, how to help people become successful at the parole board, right? Right. How to prepare families for this process, how to train attorneys. So I do think this moment makes things like parole more. No, what this moment does is make a larger swath of the general public and the advocacy community aware of what families were already struggling to do on the ground. I did a call to do a little bit of training on how to go through it and, and what the process looks like. Mm. And, you know, the questions were, framed every single question. My brother is locked up and I've been doing this to figure out how to get him out. My son is locked up and I've been doing this to figure out how to get him out. My cousin is locked up, which is a completely different framing than a lot of times what we hear. No, it's an important point. And I mean, it gets to the idea of these have been concerns and so much of the advocacy now is around prison conditions, not just the sort of existence or yeah. or release, you know, not just being in or out, but also the conditions within these facilities. Well, I do want to come back to the poetry and talk about a project that you did. You mentioned that the cover art for Felon is done by Titus, but you guys also did an exhibit called Redaction, which was super powerful. I went with my whole family to PS1 MoMA. And basically it has these paintings by Titus, but then also you did this amazing thing using redactions. So can you just explain what that project was? And then I want to hear one of those poems. So, you know, Titus is my man. And and one of the things that we were thinking about, and I should say that we're friends and our friendship, you know, first is like being fathers, being artists, and we got a lot of things in common. And so we were kind of just thinking, how might we um, create some art together? And, and it ain't easy, you know what I mean? Because you're like, this shit can't be hokey. Right. And then it's sort of like, well, the words can't overpower the image, but the image can't overpower the word. And then one mm-hmm. way to do that is how do you make the actual words become an image too? And I just started thinking redaction. And I started thinking specifically about how do you take a lawsuit and turn it into poetry, mm-hmm. Right. And I'm on the board of the Civil Rights Corps and they had been challenging mass incarceration in a number of different ways. And one of the ways was to file lawsuits against cities and localities for their practices around money bail Mm. and essentially locking people up because they couldn't afford to pay bail or because they owe small fines and fees. Now, their complaints are strong. I mean, their complaints are, you know, rightness fighting at its essence. Mm. Let me tell you what's really going on. And I'm going to try my best to reduce the kind of corners I cut that legalese requires. Right. But still, you know, you do this class action lawsuit, you representing 
60, 70 people, you represent 100 people, whatever. You do this class action lawsuit and the complaint is not really comprehensible by the people who you're representing. Right. I don't even want to read the complaint. You know, it's a job for me to read the complaint. Right. And so I know that it's a job for like most of the people who are being represented, even if they are lawyers or doctors or whatever, even if they are educated, even if they are readers. And I thought, though, what would it mean if I tried to strip that away and leave nothing but the poetry? And also I thought I would be creating these images, too, between the redacted text and the words that exist. So you could see it and you could read it in multiple ways. And then, you know, it would interact with what Titus was doing. And he was doing these portraits that came from mugshots that also had, they were like one etching and then another etching laid on top of it. So you had to look closely to examine the face that was in front of you and then realize it was two faces. Mm. Because so much of what incarceration does is reduce you to a trope. It gives you opportunity not to look closely at somebody. And so that's all of the sort of project itself was trying to create multiple ways to add to the sort of, you know, we are multitudes. And what I did was I took the complaint and I reduced it. So it might have been 60 pages and I would drop it down to four and keeping all of the words in the same order. But I would just drop words and I would just redact lines and create a poem. So in Missouri, in Missouri, at all versus the city of Ferguson, the plaintiffs... People jailed by the city. The city kept a human in its jail. The person pleaded poverty, held indefinitely, threatened, abused, left to languish, frightened. Family members could buy their freedom. Impoverished, cannot endure grotesque treatment. Overcrowded cells, denied toothbrushes, toothpaste, soap. Subjected to the stench of excrement and refuse, surrounded by walls smeared with mucus and blood for days and weeks. Bodies cover the entire cell floor. Untreated illnesses, infections and open wounds. Days, weeks, filthy bodies huddle in cold. A single thin blanket. They lose weight. They suffer. They must listen to the screams. They sit without natural light, when they will be allowed to leave. These physical abuses, jail guards taunt people, jail guards laugh, humiliate them, shivering women forced to share blankets. Officers shout, stanky ass dykes, dirty whores. City officials, employees built a scheme designed to brutalize, to punish, to profit, the architect, the city of Ferguson, the city of Ferguson, the rest of St. Louis, modern debtors prison, the city of Ferguson devastated the city's poor, trapping them in debts, extortion, and cruel jailings. The treatment reveals systematic illegality. The city has a, a Dickensian system that violates the most vulnerable, the city of Ferguson. The city's conduct is unlawful. It has been the policy to jail people, the practice to jail indigent, the practice to hold prisoners indefinitely, the practice to issue invalid warrants, to threaten to hold arrestees in jail arbitrarily, to confine people in grotesque, dangerous, and inhumane conditions, a Kafkaesque journey, a lawless and labyrinthine scheme of perpetual debt. Thank you very much. 
And so, look, this is talking about Ferguson. It's talking about essentially the debtors' prisons that they were running in Ferguson, Missouri. It strikes me that in the midst of the crisis, we got to figure out how to keep our eye on the ball. And, you know, we have to be flexible. We have to be nimble. We have to be reactive. Uh, but we also got to keep in mind sort of the what's fundamentally important. So I wonder when you look at sort of the sentiments that were expressed in a poem like In Missouri, which was written a year or more ago, right? And then the predicament that we're in now, what are the kinds of, does that feel like a whole different world or, 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 or are the questions and the answers still the same? I think in some ways the questions and answers are still the same, but we always need it. People always say, well, look, we can't do this. Mm. And in fact, certain actors were like, we can't play that role. <laughs> I took this position as a commissioner on a criminal justice commission here in Connecticut. Hmm. And the criminal justice commission, we hire prosecutors. So we hire the state's attorney, we hire the chief state's attorney, and we hire the line prosecutors. Hmm. And you gotta understand that, um, like I got three felonies, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm in a, a room, like hiring prosecutors, it seems like antithetical to my existence, right? Right. But part of it is to be like, who is in a room that's making sure that these actors are thinking differently about their role and who is in a room to better understand if what's going on in the room is pernicious, if what's going on in the room is antithetical to justice, to understand that. And because, you know, the, the real thing is like criminal law is, is complicated. Incarceration becomes a stopgap measure. That in it being a stopgap measure, it should force us as creative thinkers, as people who want to see less incarceration, to address that problem right. and not just pay lip service to it, right? And even with that, though, you know, you got to also know that, like, those are the kind of cases that fully disrupt people's lives, too. And I hope that later we are saying, well, it was always a pandemic. Incarceration is a pandemic. And I remember what you did in the middle of that crisis. Mm -hmm. And I demand and require your office to keep doing that. Yeah. Right? Like you were locking people up because they had a $500 bond before the crisis. And then you told a story about making sure that somebody got out by lowering their bond and then finding out that despite the bond being lowered, they still weren't released. And it was because they had warrants and the warrants were for like failure to appear. And you canceled out those warrants so that that person could be free. Well, I need you to do that five months from now. Yeah. Right? I need you to recognize that it is always a crisis. And so I think about my role as a commissioner in some ways be witness to some of that and in some ways push some of that. And being in this role really does allow me to think about how prosecutors think of themselves as actors. Yeah. And I've been impressed in some ways about the way in which some prosecutors and also some Department of Corrections DOC actors, because I've been involved with DOC a lot, trying to think about how to get more literature into the system, felon and other stuff, right? That people are admitting now that they have family members that have been system involved. Because in the past, they wouldn't have admitted that. Yeah. They'd be like, if I say that, I might not get this job or something, or yeah. I'm at least not going to say it publicly. So I've kind of been impressed by that, hearing prosecutors being willing to admit that kind of thing mm -hmm. on the record in public forums. That has been really um, impressive. And I think that that allows us to have more leverage in terms of saying, you know what this is. Right. And when you were forced to behave differently because of a pandemic, you behave differently. Right. Let's make that different behavior a policy now. You know. Yeah. Well, you talked about your role as a poet. You talked about your role as a legal scholar. You talked about your role as a member of this board. But the other roles that you hold that we talked about last time were as a teacher, a parent, 
a coach, and a community member. And, you know, all of our lives have been quite different over the last month or so with shelter-in-place orders. And I'm wondering for you, those other roles, those important sort of community engagements, and, and as I said, teacher-parent, how is that finding you right now? The teacher, parent, and like spouse, you know, I mean, that's cool. I mean, I, you know, it's a struggle. It's, it's like being a parent 24 hours a day. I mean, I went on a bike ride this morning, so I sort of feel like it's so funny, man. I feel like I shouldn't say this either, but, you know, I feel like so much of life is figuring out this balance. Mm-hmm. And when I'm riding that bike, man, it, it allows me to get this satisfaction in which I'm, I'm like leaving, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I'm conscientiously making this decision to like turn around and like, all right, now it's time to come back. Mm-hmm. And um, you think about like hunting, and you think about fishing and you think about hiking and all of these sort of ways in which we try to engage with the natural world. It gives us that opportunity to reaffirm our commitment to come back to the world. You know, being a community member is a bit more challenging because it is really figuring out how to operate in this space where things are so different. And some of it is just like me writing Amazon reviews for books that I love. Mm-hmm. You know, some of it is like spending time talking about the kind of writing and the kind of work that I cherish. And I got offered to do a poetry workshop with my son's class earlier today and, you know, figuring out how to do things like that. So I think it's a struggle. I mean, a lot of it, it doesn't feel like prison, you know, sheltering in place is not like staying in your cell. But it is a little bit because like um, the world has so many distractions that you don't have to look at somebody. And this sheltering in place forces you to look at the people who you live close to. And if you live alone you end up looking in the mirror a lot, you know, but you really have to think about how to spend time with those people who you chose to spend time with. And I am actually pretty happy and grateful that I really like the people (laughs) who are in my family. Yeah, I mean, my kids are likely to come back any minute now and interrupt this interview, but I'm glad to hear that you're able to get out, that you're able to stay sane, that you're in a loving (laughs) household. I'm thankful to be similarly occupied or similarly situated. But as you said, that's not true for everybody. Yeah, man, it's not, you know. And so, but that's cool though, because in some ways, I mean, it's not cool that it's not true for others, but I think it's another powerful thing that now we can contemplate, like, how do we work with this? How does this become a part of the fabric of this work that we do? And you talked about reentry. The conversation started with reentry. Well, really, reentry is how do you make sure that people have those kinds of loving communities and actually rethinking space? Well, from the work perspective, You were still doing your book tour. And I know for a lot of artists, a lot of poets, bookstores are closed. A lot of stuff is getting canceled. This was actually supposed to be a live event we were going to do in New Haven. Right. I'm wondering from the perspective of a poet and an artist, how much this disruption has affected you. Man, it ain't easy, man. You know, bookstores shutting down, not having the gigs. But I think it's forced me. I mean, I've been working on that solo show. So it's, it's forced me to really dig into that wrote a couple pieces, you know, but it's forced me to think seriously about how to make art have value when it's not transactional. Because right now it's not transactional. And if that's all it was about, it can't exist right now. Mm. So it's forced me to think about that, but it's also forced me to think a little bit about when times are better, how do I define audience? How do I think about what audience is? And that too isn't easy. Most books, man, the print run is a thousand books. Yeah. You know, it's not like people have a print run of hundred thousand books. And we don't sell out of those thousand books. And so this moment really makes me seriously think about how do we support our own? You know, it's like how do we have a presence in a world where we say the things that we love? And I'm one 
that is quick to tell you about the stuff that I hate just because it's, it's so much easier. <laughs> but like, how do we make room to talk about the things that we love? And, and I've been trying to do that, you know, like The Other Americans by Layla Lalami is like a fantastic novel. And you don't think about it as a novel that's about criminal justice issues, but it is, right? And it doesn't answer the questions the way we want, but it forces us to think through it. And I think that's what we need art to do. Art needs to help us see each other more fully and give us a pathway to make that fullness mean something more than evidence for why we should hurt each other more, you know? Well, I want to close with a lightning round. A few quick questions. All right. All right. So one is... You're very active on Twitter. One time you said that Marshawn Lynch is your favorite black man in America. I want to hear about why. My man is just recklessly honest, man. <laughs> you know, he run, he riding through Oakland right now, giving out masks, giving out masks. Because the police is busting dudes down for not having masks in public. And he like, problem, let me figure out how to solve it. I just like his reckless kind of honesty. Yeah. And I appreciate it. Of course, for those who don't know, sorry, for the non-sports fans, Marshawn Lynch, NFL running back, Oakland legend, known for being, as he says, about that business. Yeah. No, he said about that action. About that, about action, that action, bro. About that action, <laughs> He bro. said I'm about that action. Okay, next one. You already mentioned one book, the Layla Lalami book, but what's another recommended reading for people who are on Shelter in Place and Matt has some time? I just read Brothers and Keepers again by John Edgar Wyman. And I suggest that it was written in 1984. His brother got felony murder. And what's so great about the book is it's basically a conversation between the two brothers and you hear both of their voices. Mm. But this book is written before mass incarceration is a term. And so reading it, and it's also not a prison memoir, it's both sides. It's the brother, it's John talking about going in to see his brother, it's his brother talking to John. And, and it doesn't focus on like the violence and all of that about prison. It's something different. It's two brothers trying to figure out who they are and explain that to each other mm. while living mm. within a structure that is horrendous. And reading somebody's work that's thinking about how messed up incarceration is that predates this kind of conversation we have now, I think is pretty revelatory. So I would say check that out. The new edition is coming out in a few months. Scribner is reissuing the book. Robert is out now, which is a great reason to reread the book. If things work out, me and Mitchell Jackson... We wrote the introduction for it, oh, nice. and so did Robert. It's a powerful book to read in this moment, but it's also something to say, man, because he did 40 years. Wow. And we need to stop the possibility that that happened. You know, we got too many elders who have done decades and decades, so I suggest that one. Well, I will note for, we're, we're recording this video, uh, but for those who are just listening to the audio, we both have on hats right now. It's been a long time since the barbershops have been open. I saw a brother on the street the other day with the tightest, freshest fade, and I didn't know whether to give him a round of applause or to scream at him. Uh, I wonder what your reaction is when you see somebody who actually has a great haircut. I ain't gonna front, man. I, you remember Bubs from The Wire? <laughs> yeah. My wife said my hair looked like his the day we met. Um, <laughs> you know, my sons don't get hair because my sons is 12 and 8. One got locks, the other one got a real naughty kind of fro. I shake my beard up. <laughs> I don't really get haircuts, man. You know what I mean? I In prison, they called me Shaheem the Rugged Child when I first went in. You know what I mean? <laughs> they was like, yo, man, like, I see somebody where I'm like, bro, you, I, I applaud them, but I just be like, yeah, it's yeah. not going to be me, man. 
You know? <laughs> so you are not going to be on the Capitol steps protesting that you need a haircut? Nah. They need to reopen the state so you can go to the barbershop. And when I do go get a haircut, you know, it's, it's going to be a mohawk, so. <laughs> Dude, what's giving you hope right now? I mean, you know, my homeboy made parole, man. He did 28 years. You know, he made parole. The parole board in Virginia fought, man. They were working 10, 11 hour days. They released more people on parole. And it ain't enough, but they released more people on parole and man, hope is easy, man. You know what I mean? It's like it's like one of those things. It's like you gonna hope or you not. And I think hope is an easy one. My kids, uh, yeah, my kids give me hope. We struggle through things, we survive. But uh, I have hope because during this crisis, mass incarceration and, and getting people out of prison has become an issue for a lot of us, and for a lot of us who it wasn't an issue with before. So I, I'm, I, that makes me hopeful too. You know. What are you looking forward to most? What's your next project? What's on the horizon that you can't wait to grab? I got something that I, that's cooking up that I can't talk about. I will be really excited when I can finally like really talk about that. And man, I'm doing a solo show. I'm trying to go to Broadway. You know what I mean? I spend a lot of time. Word. First time I try to figure out who the fuck I am. You know what I mean? And it's it ain't easy. You spend all this time in prison, and you think you know, as you're not decade in prison, you will be at this place in your career. You will be a litigator. You will be a public defender. What is this thing that, that you know, I ask myself, what is this thing that I am? But I, I'm becoming, mm. I'm getting closer to embracing the arrogance that you need to say, I want to be a renaissance man. Yeah. I want to do this solo show on Broadway, man. I want to do this other thing. I want to do that other thing. And so, yeah, I'm excited about working on this solo show. I'm excited about turning felon into something that's recognizably different. Mm-hmm. And I never memorized a poem in my life. And right now I know the first three pieces that open up the solo show by heart. And I feel real good about that. Weird. Well, we can't wait to see it. Can't wait for the theaters to be open, the bookstores to be open, and us to be able to wrap our arms around our communities. But Dwayne Betts, it's an honor. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe and uh, much love. Much love, man. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace.